0: Well, in 1954, British novelist William Golding released his what would become very popular book titled, Lord of the Flies. Have you read it? Maybe. Whether you have or not, here's the gist. The story begins with a group of British boys who crash land on a deserted island during World War II. There are no parents. There are no teachers. There are no local authorities on this island. And it doesn't take very long before the boys, out of necessity, establish a governing system. They establish authority, a a pecking order, if you will. And the rest of the book, allegorically, allegory being a story that reveals a hidden meaning, exposes how when authority is met with our fallen human nature, what's in the heart of man,
1: pride, evil, violence,
0: even demoralization ensues. This is seen in the boy's good and natural natural desire, their commitment to authority, but then their abuses of it. This is also exposed when the Boys are found by, get this, an A. Wall military officer who is running away from war and away from his military officer and stumbles upon the island. By the end of the book, what is made abundantly clear is that we all have an authority problem. And I wonder how you think about
1: or feel about authority this morning. Is the concept appealing? or appalling.
0: I guarantee you, whatever is coming to your mind, the good, the bad, and the ugly experiences with authority that, has, that have been exercised maybe by you or over you for better or for worse. But here's the thing. No matter our thoughts or our emotions or experiences on the matter, we all have to wrestle with the concept of authority. No one gets a pass on this. No one gets a pass on it. And we all have to wrestle with what it looks like to commit to and submit to authority in our lives. And this morning, in the Gospel according to John, we are going to do just that. We are going to think about, we are going to wrestle with together as we come face to face with the greatest good authority among all authorities
1: this morning the question is will you have you commit and submit to him so with that question in our
0: minds and on our hearts let's open the book of john together this morning we are going to be continuing our series through this gospel account we're going to be diving into chapter 5 this morning. And if you do not have a Bible, you could find one in a pew near you. You could, fa- you could find this chapter, this book, on page 886. And this morning, let me encourage you to bring your physical Bible to church. Let's use this time together to detach from screens, even to detach from reading on a big screen like, like these. And let's dive into the words of Jesus this morning. We'll be all helped to keep our Bibles open to John 5 this morning. John chapter 5. Please follow along as I read just the first 18 verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray and ask the Lord to bless the hearing
1: and applying of his word this morning.
0: Father, we ask that You would send Your Spirit now to open Your Word up to us, and to open us up to Your Word. Cause us to
1: behold Your glory in the face of Jesus this morning. It's in His name that we pray, amen.
0: Well, just to catch us up thus far in the Gospel according to John, we have beheld Jesus and the truth that He is the Word and Light bringer. That He is the final sacrificial Lamb rescuer. That He is the sovereign relationship initiator. That He is the great sign worker. That He is the kingdom inaugurator. That He is the new heart maker. And that He is the compassionate Messiah redeemer. Today in chapter 5, we discover that Jesus is, just as we saw at the close of chapter 4, the powerful Savior and spiritual healer of His people. And as Savior healer, He has complete authority. And He is worthy of our commitment and our submission. And that's really the point, the big idea of John chapter 5. Jesus has complete authority. So commit and submit to Him. Jesus has complete authority. So commit and submit to him. And John makes this point and builds upon this point as he causes us to transfix our gaze upon Jesus, to behold his authoritative power in verses 1 through 18, to hear his authoritative profession or declaration in verses 19 through 29 and then consider authoritative proof that he is who he says he is in verses 30 to 47 that's the big idea and that's our outline to guide our time together those should be up on the on the screen so let's dive in point one the authoritative power of Jesus well chapter 5 starts a new section in John. And this section from chapter 5 through chapter 10 has been called the festival cycle. We are clued into this at the beginning of chapter 5 when John notes that the feast of the Jews was at hand. And it is widely understood that this feast is the feast of the Sabbath. That blessed Sabbath that was instituted back in Exodus chapter 20 when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem to gather for this feast, to celebrate it. And when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he enters the city through what is called the Sheep Gate, as we read there. And he visits a pool called Bethesda. And around the pool, there is a sea of sickness. This place is filled with those who are blind and lame and paralyzed, as it says there in verse 3. So you can imagine the sight and the smells of this place.
1: The helplessness, the hopelessness
0: of this place. And we read there in verse 5 that there's a man there, an invalid. who's paralyzed actually as we're going to see. He's been lying there for 38 years. And Jesus sees the man lying there. And here once again, we see the compassionate gaze of Jesus on full display. He sees the sick man just as he saw the disciples back in chapter 1. And he sees all, the, all people, the heart of all people in chapter 2. As he sees the confused and hard heart of Nicodemus in chapter 3. As he sees the Samaritan woman at the well and then sees the
1: Roman official in chapter 4. Here we see this helpless, paralyzed man is seen by Jesus. Jesus sees his affliction. He sees the afflictions of all his people on that day and on this day.
0: Now, we don't know anything about this man. He is simply one sick man in a multitude of sick people, but Jesus singles him out, and he asks there in verse six, "Do you want to be healed?" Now I know what you're probably thinking: What in the world? Why would he ask this question? Well, of course, he wants to be healed. He's been lying there for the majority of his life. But what John wants us to see here is that Jesus is seeing and asking of this question is an evidence of his pure grace. This man didn't deserve this question. No faith or belief had been exercised on his part. And yet, Jesus initiates. He incarnates. He extends to him an offer. An offer that he cannot refuse to be healed. Not just physically, but spiritually, as we're going to see later. We also need to notice here is that this man responds with a misplaced hope. Did you notice that there in verse 7? This man is focused on the physical pool and the superstitious folklore around it. This man had kind of bought in to the myth that if he could just be the first one into the pool, because it was believed that an angel would come down and stir it up here and there periodically, if this man just got into the pool, then then he would be healed. And here's the connecting piece to, to the chapter before just as the Samaritan woman was so focused on physical water from a physical well, on a physical land, and Jesus needed to refocus her attention to see something better, the spiritual water, living water that he could bring from a well that will never run dry. This man is in a similar place and needs to be refocused. His hope,
1: like hers, was misplaced. And Jesus has something better for him. And so he says, verse 8, get up. Take up your bed. And walk. All Jesus, the very
0: word of God, must do is speak. And verse 9, at once, there was no delay, notice, no delay, this man was healed. And he obeyed. He took up his bed and he walked. Behold, Jesus, the one who has the authoritative power to heal physically and spiritually.
1: And this healing ought to
0: fill us with hope. ought to lead us deeper into prayer that that Jesus can heal whatever physical or emotional, relational, mental affliction that we have.
1: Jesus is more than able to heal today. And yet we must also recognize that Jesus does not always heal in this life. Jesus walked by many other sick people at the pool that day. But in the end, we must recognize that He
0: healed the sick man to display His own glory, His sovereign authority, His goodness and His grace. And this healing ought to increase our hope in Jesus, the one who has all authority to heal according to his sovereign will. Well, we read at the close of verse 9 that this happened on the Sabbath and all havoc breaks loose. Oh, this is really a turning point in the narrative of the gospel where opposition begins to form against Jesus more intensely. And we read that the Jews, again, this is shorthand for the Jewish leaders, see this healed man in verse 10. They, they say, hey, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, what we need to recognize here and to understand is that this man hadn't broken God's word. He hadn't broken the law of Moses. He had broken their tradition. For the Jewish leaders of that day had created 39 categories of what you shouldn't do on the Sabbath. And so they were angry. Again, this man, they're angry with this man for breaking their rules. They were so consumed with the pseudo-authority of their tradition found within their misreading of the Old Testament. They were so consumed with their false understanding of what God expected of them. They were so consumed with legalistic tradition. Rigor morale, duty that they forfeit the love of God displayed in Jesus in the healing of this man. What a word of warning to us to not trade the love of God for legalistic tradition in our own understanding and interpreting of God's Word in our life together. One way that we could heed this warning and pursue this is by not fighting over and for traditions in the church, but by fighting for unity in the gospel of Jesus in the life of the church. Well, in light of all of this, what does this man do? Well, he kind of places the blame on Jesus. Did you notice that? There in verses 11 through 13, he says, well, there was this man. That, that man healed me. And they're like, uh, who is this guy? What? What did he ask you to do? But Jesus at that point is nowhere to be found. But we do read in verse 14 that Jesus finds him later in the temple and exclaims, hey, you're still well. Just making sure that he recognizes that there's no like, uh, expiration date on his healing. But well, then he says, sin no more so that nothing
1: worse may happen to you. Now we should be really careful here. Jesus is not saying that this man was sick because of his
0: sin. Yes, sickness can be the result of sin. For instance, like an STD from sexual misconduct. But we know from the consistent testimony of
1: Scripture that physical sickness is not a result of sin. But I believe that Jesus is warning this man of a worse thing that could happen on the last day because of his sin.
0: And we're going to hear more about that in just a little bit. Well, this healed man goes away and he he tells the Jewish leaders who healed him. And the leaders don't exalt Jesus, they seek to execute him. This is the first time in John that we read a foreshadowing of, of his death. But notice what Jesus' response is there in verse 17. He says, my father has always been working, even on the Sabbath. And so I am working. And the religious leaders hear this loud.
1: And clear. They hear
0: it as a claim of equality with God. And it is. And so they seek to kill him. And so here's the point. Jesus not only has the authority to heal, to heal, he also has the authority to work on the Sabbath because he is the Lord of the Sabbath.
1: He instituted it.
0: But it doesn't stop here with this healing and this claim. He goes on to further clarify this by making an authoritative profession in verse 19 uh, through 29 about who he truly is and what he can do and why he is doing it. And that brings us to point two, the authoritative profession or declaration of Jesus. Look with me at verses 19 through 29. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than this will be shown to you, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in the judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Well, in this, this section of, of John chapter 5, we We behold some of the richest and deepest theology of Scripture. And this theology ought to lead us to doxology, right? This truth about who God is ought to lead us to the praise of God. And these verses contain some of the greatest truth of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. But brothers and sisters, let's make no mistake. We are wading into deep mystery here, deep mystery and majesty in this authoritative profession, in these claims that we, we read in Jesus here. And so wading in deeper now, kind of further and further in, let's look at the truth professed here by looking at this in three sections, each marked by a truly, truly statement by Jesus. And when he says truly, truly, that's something that we really, really should grasp about who Jesus is. So the first is in verses 19 and then through 23. The second is in verse 24. And then the third is in verses 25 to 29. Let's wade through these and discover, and maybe rediscover, the authority of Jesus here in this section. First, in verses 19 through 23, here in these verses, Jesus is making it clear that he is truly, truly the Son of God, the Son of the Father, the second person of what has been called the Trinity. From the Old Testament into the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, on the pages of Scripture, we see that God is triune. That He is one God, okay, we need to catch this, one God that has revealed Himself in three co-equal, co-eternal, distinct persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus is shedding light on this reality here, particularly on the Father and Son. Jesus is saying that as the second person of the Trinity, that he reveals the Father, that he is loved by the Father, that he has been given authority to judge. By who? The Father. That he, in obedience and co-equality, has come to accomplish what the Father has planned. And that he ought to be honored, just like God the Father. Jesus is not subservient to the Father. He is not a God amongst the gods of the Trinity. He is not a less than God. He is truly God. And we need to capture that here.
1: And we ought to also see this.
0: And in verse 20, we should respond by marveling at this. For Jesus, as God Himself, also has the Power to give spiritual life to the spiritually dead now. And this is highlighted there in the second truly, truly of verse 24. There we read the claim that Jesus is the life giver and that whoever hears the word of life, whoever hears Jesus and believes in him, has eternal life. And that person is not and will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life in the present. Did you notice that? the present tense here this is a reality for jesus's hearers and believers then and now through the preaching of jesus's very life-giving words this
1: is happening even now you should marvel at that
0: and so jesus's message is clear in this authoritative profession that today is the day of salvation then Today is the day for those who hear and believe in Him. Today is the day of salvation for those who repent of their sin and place their trust in His sinless life, His atoning death, and His glorious resurrection. Today is the day to hear and heed the voice of Jesus and experience abundant life in Him. Today is the day. And if you have turned to Him, brother, sister, and are continuing to turn to Him by grace through faith, then we have assurance of salvation today and on the last day. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of the authority and saving grace of Jesus alone. And this is highlighted there in the third truly, truly statement in verses 25 to 29. Oh, here Jesus is saying that we live between two hours, two advents. The hour of His first coming, His first advent. And that we're celebrating this month and the, the coming of his second hour, right? the, the, the second advent. And in that second hour, all who are in the tombs, as it says, there in verse 29, will come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And today and on that day, Jesus is, as we read here, the final authoritative and eternal judge, then and now. For on the last day, as we read here, His voice will divide those who are alive in Him and those who are dead in their sin outside of Him. And here is where the authoritative healing above intersects with Jesus' words here. To the physical healing above pointed to spiritual healing, the spiritual reality that only Jesus can do. And this is why Jesus tells the healed man, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus wasn't arguing for salvation through this healed man's good works. Well, if you could only just be, like, reach some sort of sinless perfection, then then we're good. That's not what's happening here. He's arguing for salvation through himself. A spiritual healing that can only come through him. And part of that spiritual healing is actively turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus for life. Not only today, but also on the last day. For on the last day, as the text says, we will be resurrected to either life in Christ or we'll be resurrected to eternal judgment outside of Him. And if you're concerned about that day,
1: then hear hear this assurance in the Gospel. Hear it now.
0: In the beginning, God created man and woman. He created Adam and Eve, and He placed them in a beautiful garden. But they rebelled. They, they turned from God's good authority and established their own autonomous zone. Their own authority. They denied the good and gracious authority of God in their lives. And what happened? Sin entered the world. And it's not just Adam and Eve who have sinned. We know from the testimony of Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us in this room are are sinners. And the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. We will all one day die. Death has a 100% success rate. We will all one day die, and we will all one day stand before Jesus and be judged.
1: But God,
0: being gracious and merciful, so loved the world that He sent His only Son, Jesus, That's that truth of of John 3:16, just a couple chapters before this. He lived a sinless life, and yet he was crowned with a crown of thorns, and he went to the cross, and there he suffered under the wrath of God as a perfect sacrifice for sin, the sins of his people, for all who repent and believe in him once and for all. But he didn't stay dead. After being laid in a tomb, three days later, he got up in power and glory and authority. And why did He do all of this? He did this so that sin-sick sinners like you and I can get up and be brought from spiritual death into spiritual life by responding to the gospel. We should know that that same language of getting up used in the healing is used here throughout this section for getting up on the last day. And so we should respond to the gospel by repenting of our sin and continuing to repent of our sin. And turning away from all of those ways that we've rejected God's authority and turned our own way and turned toward Jesus by grace through faith because His work alone saves. It alone saves. And if you've done this, then your unholiness has been exchanged for Christ's holiness. Your unrighteousness has been exchanged for His righteousness. His death for your life. Now and forevermore. And there is therefore
1: no condemnation for you if you are in Christ. He is your assurance. He is our assurance.
0: Jesus' claims in this passage, give us blessed assurance. And here's the thing, if we respond to Jesus' sovereign call to get up today, then on the last day we will get up from the grave and enter abundant life with Christ eternally. And if we don't, we will get up to eternal judgment in a, in a real place called hell.
1: If you have questions about this, I would love to talk with you.
0: I'll be standing at the door after the, the service or you can find another pastor here, another leader here. You can, you can find another member here We would love to talk with you about life in the gospel that can only come through Jesus today
1: in anticipation of that last day.
0: Well, when we bring all of these truly, truly statements together, we hear Jesus making one clear, authoritative profession, and it's this. Jesus is God, that he is God's son, that he has complete authority, and his deity, his divinity, and his authority is over and above all in life and in death. But there's still more in this chapter. We don't only have the authoritative power of Jesus revealed in the healing of the paralytic. We don't only have the authoritative uh, profession of Jesus here in these verses, which are intimately connected, right? We also have further authoritative proof that Jesus is who he says he is. In verses 30 through 47. So look there with me. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He sent to John, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, Moses, on whom you have sent or set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, I don't know if you're a fan of Law and Order or another kind of courtroom drama show like that, but here Jesus, the co-equal Son of God, who, who perfectly is just and is perfectly obedient to the Father, as it says there in verses 30 to 31, brings before the religious leaders, and really us today, four witnesses, like in one of those, one of those shows four witnesses that provide even further authoritative proof that Jesus has complete authority above all and that he is who he says he is. And those four witnesses are the witness of, the John, of John the Baptist in verses 32 to 35, the witness of his own works, of Jesus' own works there in verse 36, the witness of his father in verses 37 to 38, and then the witness of Scripture in verses 39 to 40. So first, let's look at the, the first witness, John the Baptist, there in verses 30 to 35. Here in this section of this, this passage, and as we have seen in the Gospel account thus far, John the Baptist's ministry existed to exalt not himself, but Jesus. Remember that, that claim, I must decrease so that he might increase? That was the message of John. He existed to exalt Jesus, and like in a dark and dank room, he was the lit lamp, as it says there in verse 35, that shined light on the glory and goodness of Jesus. And Jesus is setting the record straight here with his own words that John, who was likely in prison by this point in the narrative, was a forerunner, a witness, a proof of the good and final authority of Jesus. Well, the second witness we see are His own works there in verse 36. What we need to see here is that Jesus is making it abundantly clear that His historical works are a greater witness to His authority than, than John could ever be. Did you notice that? The historical signs or, or miracles, the sermons, the, the future work that He would do in His cross work and resurrection, All, all of them revealed God to the world so that no one could escape the testimony then and now. And his works really historically authenticate his authority and divinity. And we all must wrestle with that. That's what he was seeking to do here to the religious leaders. This is what he's seeking to do to us. This is the point he's getting across. Every person must acknowledge that Jesus, based on his own claims and his own works, is either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord over all. Including your life. And Jesus' very claims and his work is a proof of his authority over your life. Well, the third witness Jesus brings forward here is another proof of his authority and divinity is the Father. In these verses, Jesus brings forward some really powerful
1: accusations that he is making, that the Father
0: is making. And they're really accusations against the the religious leaders of that day, but also to unbelievers today, those who are agnostic about Jesus today. Jesus is saying that you have not heard God's voice. You have not seen God. You don't have His Word abiding in you, and you do not believe because you do not recognize God. My authority. That's what Jesus is saying. These are heavy accusations. And in a politically correct, kind of nice, uh, kind of tone policing culture, this kind of uh, declaration, <laughs> this kind of public judgment and confrontation is, is often kind of frowned upon, right? But Jesus pulls no punches here. Nope, no punches. Here he's essentially saying, I am the mediator between heaven and earth, and if you reject me, you're rejecting God. End of story. Or you think that Jesus would have stopped there, but he doesn't. He goes on. He brings a fourth witness to the table, the witness of Scripture there in verses 39 to 47. He tells the religious leaders that you have searched the Scriptures for life. He is saying you have studied, memorized, toiled over. You know the Old Testament front to back. You know every jot and tittle. You know the Word and you have sought life in it. And beyond this, you have put your hope in the pages of Scripture in the person of Moses. But you have misunderstood the object of life and you have misplaced your hope. See, the leaders had a very high view of God's Word, didn't they? Very high view. They would even go as far as to say that spiritual life and hope came from the literal words, the ink of scripture. One popular first century rabbi writes this. He says, the more Torah, the more life. The more sitting in the company of scholars, the more wisdom. If one acquires a good name, he has acquired something for himself. If one acquires for himself knowledge of Torah, which is the Old Testament, he has acquired life in the world to come. So this quote reveals that the religious leaders considered scripture to be a means of life in of itself and it was never meant to
1: be. The leaders also thought that they
0: understood Moses and the prophets rightly. But here Jesus is turning the table. He's turning the tables here on, on the leaders and is saying that the authoritative word testifies of me. You cannot divorce God's word and God's son, God's word made flesh. These two things are meant to go together. And Moses, the one that you've placed your hope in religious leaders, who you have believed in, as it says in verse 46 to 47, pointed toward me, and he accuses you for true spiritual life and hope can only be found in me. Now, Jesus is not putting down God's word here. God's word is profitable, and it is sufficient for faith and practice. Amen? Amen. But he is saying to his audience then and now that if you read Scripture and fail to see me, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're reading it poorly. And so pulling this whole chapter together, Jesus is saying, look at the restored life and the paralytic at my word and command. Look at my own profession as life giver and judge on today and on the last day. Look to the Scriptures. All of these point to authority in me. All of them. That's what Jesus is saying. And life and true authority can be found in none other only in Jesus. Now, it's really easy to read a passage like this and think to yourself, I know that I've often thought this, what's wrong with these religious leaders? Why are they so dense? Well, why can't they see what's right in front of them? Well, newsflash. We are so often the religious leaders.
1: We are just like them. So often. We
0: could so often study the scripture and believe that we've arrived when we've barely touched the, the surface. We can have God's word in our minds and not our hearts and revealed in our hands the way we serve. We can read the Bible in accordance with our favored interpretation and then fail to see how the text fits in the redemptive storyline of the Bible and miss the point altogether. We can study and study and study and fail to see the point, the point, the point, which is Jesus and his gospel. We can treat the Bible like the Pharisees did, like a legalistic rule book, and we can live like what theologian Michael Reeves calls evangelical Pharisees today and fail to love and adore Christ and to find unity in Him. We can also, just like the religious leaders, so often look to men like they did Moses and consciously or unconsciously place our hope in them, in a pastor or a president or a civic leader
1: a spouse, a friend.
0: Do any of these describe you? Then open God's Word and ask the Lord to show you Jesus. And ask the Spirit to give you fresh eyes to see the glory and beauty
1: and authority of Jesus.
0: Well, all of this misreading and misunderstanding and misinterpreting led to a deep-seated pride in the religious leaders. And that pride was expressed in self-glory and seeking the praise of others. And this is Jesus' point in verses 41 to 44. And we need to hear this, brothers and sisters, loud and clear. At the heart of sin is self-glory and seeking the praise and approval of others
1: over the praise and approval of God. It's at the heart of sin.
0: And when we live like this, we attempt to build our little kingdoms, our little kingdoms of our our preferences, our rights, our perspectives, our our good works, our self-declared authority, all for the glory of ourselves and the approval of other men and women in the home, in the workplace, yes, even in the church, even in the church. Oh, but brothers and sisters, if we seek to glorify Jesus, if you have the love of God in you, if if we have the love of God in us and we're seeking his approval and his kingdom by remaining faithful to his word and gospel, oh, then we will seek to glorify him all the more. We will seek to worship him all the more. We We will seek to exalt him all the more and not ourselves. We will seek to live humbly under his authority and not seek our own self-declared authority. We will seek to commit to Jesus and submit to Jesus and to his word. We will commit to his authority, not only when
1: it serves us, but we will also submit to his authority.
0: We will prove our love for God and belief in him by committing and submitting to his word and his body his local church, a church like Hillsborough First Baptist Church. And so may we heed the words of Jesus and ask the Spirit to kill our pride, to kill our so often tendencies, to to self-glorify for our
1: good, personally and also collectively as a body.
0: Church, all of these authoritative proofs, all of these claims, all of these witnesses, are given to us so that we might commit and submit to Christ's good and final authority. Amen? And so as we close, let me ask you once again:
1: have you commit and submit to Jesus?
0: Have you commit and submit to His word, to His body, by joining a church, by committing? to Christ vertically and committing to a church horizontally in in local church membership.
1: What does your life display?
0: Have you bowed the knee and confessed Jesus as Lord? Not only in, in words, but also in actions. In allegiance to His Word. Because one day, brothers and sisters, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and that He has Authority over all. And if you're a Christian today, then we have the privilege,
1: the right, to bow and confess Him today personally and collectively here as a church. We have the privilege to confess and sing
0: now. Behold our God, seated on His throne, come let us adore Him. Behold our King, nothing can compare, come let us adore Him. We have the privilege and right to confess that today, we're committing and submitting to Jesus as Lord. So let's continue to do that together, brothers and sisters. Let's pray and then we're going to sing those words together in just a moment. Let me close our time in prayer. Father, we praise You as the One who sent
1: the Son. We thank You, Jesus,
0: for accomplishing the work of saving sinners. Lord, we ask, Spirit, that You would would cause us to behold the glory of of Jesus in the pages of Scripture. And that we would be conformed further into His image. And as that happens, Lord, that we would be living, not only in the Gospel, but out the Gospel, for our joy and for Your good glory. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.